I don't, I don't care who you are, what you believe, you believe something about how the universe got here. You believe something about how we got here. Everybody has that, right? And that's what this goes on to say, right? To reject one belief is to accept another. Uh, even an atheist has a set of beliefs. Right? Even an atheist has a set of beliefs. And people that claim that they, I don't believe anything, that's a set of beliefs. Right? And so if we were to ask an atheist, how did the universe begin? What's the cause of the universe? Would they have an answer? They would. They would have an answer, right? They would go to the Big Bang Theory, and that would be their answer. And then when we, how did human life get here? Well, that's Darwinian evolution. And so they would have these ideas. Well, what about nature, and what about the purpose of the universe? Well, there is no purpose. But all of that is a belief. And so when we look at this definition and we apply it to people's worldviews, even atheism is a religion. Even atheism is a religion. Now, if you ever get in a discussion with an atheist and you just want to, man, just watch them go ballistic, tell them that. Oh, your belief's a religion. They will lose their mind immediately. I've done it. I've had these conversations. It's just another religion, a false one, but it's a religion. There's no way I don't believe in God. Ah, that's not what religion is, right? Religion is, it's a belief about Cause, nature, and the purpose of the universe. Everybody's belief qualifies as a religion. Okay? All right? That's what I was saying. Everybody has a religion. The question is, is it truth? Is it truth? Probably a year or so ago, somebody was asking me about sharing the gospel, how I share the gospel, and they were just interested. They said, you know, where do you start at? Where do you start at when you share the gospel? And I said, in most cases, I start with truth. I start with truth. Because we live in a post-Christian culture that doesn't even believe that truth exists. So first, we've got to establish something on the grounds of truth. And that's where I always start. Not always, most of the time. Um, because we need to ask the question, when somebody says, I'm Hindu, okay, great. How do you know that's true? Right? And, and if somebody asks you, what are you? Oh, I'm a follower of Christ. How do you know that's true? That is fair game for them to ask you that question. And we need to have a response. You know, saying me, mom, papa were Christians, and mom and dad are Christians, and so I go to a church, and so I'm a Christian. You know, that's, that's not a response. And one, that doesn't make you a Christian either. We all need to have responses, and we all need to be able to ask is it true? And then we need to be able to respond why we believe that that's true and the evidence that gives it that. Okay? So Christianity, it's a theistic worldview focused on the person of Jesus Christ. Set this up here. Again, as, as we kind of go through this process, obviously it's because... Hopefully, I believe, and hopefully most of you believe, right, when we look at the Christian worldview, we, we, we believe that it best explains the reality around us. And so as we go through this process, and certainly over the next five weeks, this becomes the standard. Christianity is the plumb line, and we're going to compare all these other world, these other five worldviews, we're going to compare it to Christianity, right? And so we're going to talk about, right, all truth is God's truth, and 
all worldviews have some truth in them. Right? Kevin Dorman and I were talking earlier this evening. He says that's what makes them so appealing. It's because there's some truth in them. Right? And so we're going to sit there and look at, okay, what are the truths that are in them and where does that align up with Christianity? And where are the ideas that they don't align with Christianity? I think the value of knowing where is truth in secular humanism is, is that becomes a bridge of discussions for us. Instead of starting out, well, hey, these are all the things that we disagree with. Hey, this is what we agree with, right? And that becomes a door for opening conversations. And that's what we want. Man, we don't want to, man, if we get into an argument, we're done. We, you know, we've already lost that part, that conversation for the cause of Christ. That's not what we want. Man, we want to be able to have influence for the cause of Christ. So we derive our understanding of the world through the teachings of the Bible. Scripture is the lens by which we determine all reality. It's Scripture. That becomes our lens. And so when we start to wrestle with an idea, right? we can talk about it logically, we can talk about it philosophically, But does it align with Scripture? Does it line up with God's purpose and design? Again, we talked about that last week. So Christianity, we have two sources of revelation. General revelation, which this is God's communication of Himself to all people in all times and all places. Right? That's, gen, that's what creation. It's the created order. It's nature. That's general revelation. And so we can learn some things about God through looking at general revelation. Right? We can learn some truth in general, revela- general revelation, and that's available to all people. Whether you're a follower of Christ or not, it's available to you. Romans 1, 19 and 20, it says, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Right? Psalms 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. Look, general revelation is enough to convict us of our sins, but it's not enough to save us from our sins. And it's important that we know that. And again, I've had discussions with people, and they, well, what, what about those people that never hear the gospel of Jesus Christ? What about them? Right? And I've heard people teach, well, you know what? If you just respond to the truth that God makes available to you, that's enough to save you. And look, I'm just going to be honest with you. I like that idea. I really do. Because it makes it easier for people to get saved and to get into heaven. There's just one problem with that. It's not biblical. Right? Scripture tells us it's only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that people are saved. It's not through responding to a little bit of truth. It's responding to all of who Jesus Christ is and what He's called us to. That's what saves us. You know, so then what about those people that never hear the gospel? You know what? Our God's big enough that if somebody responds to the truth that's available to them, God will reveal more truth. 
And if they respond to that truth, he will continue to reveal more truth until you get to the gospel. If he has to parachute a missionary in the middle of the Amazon, God can do that. God can do that. Right? There are no hindrances to God. There's no barriers. There's no boundaries that keeps God out. Man, if you desire to know the God of all creation, he'll reveal himself to you. He will get the gospel of Jesus Christ to you or you to the gospel. But general revelation, it's enough to convict us of our sins. It's not enough to save us from our sins. So special revelation, right? It's God's unique revelation about himself through the scriptures. That's special revelation. 2 Timothy 3, 16. Right? All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. It is God-breathed. And again, the questions come up. Oh, I just think it's just a book written by men. And again, you know, our first response is, is to launch into a rebuttal. Well, just ask, you don't have to do that. Just ask, why do you believe that? How did you come to that conclusion? Man, let people state why they believe. And again, a statement is not an argument, right? To make an assertion doesn't mean that it's true. That's just a preference or an opinion that you have. And that's okay to have it. Just don't state it like it's an absolute truth. Or that's an argument that just drop the mic and walk away. It's only through special revelation that we can know redemption. It's only through special revelation that we can know the gospel. Period. I love this. Christopher Hitchens, he's an atheist. He was an atheist. He died a few years back. But anyway, he, he, he gets this. He gets this. This is a quote that he said. He said, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice, our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. <laughs> he gets it. He gets it. And you're like, I've met Christians that, yeah, that don't get that. You know, you can't help but think, you know, how close was Christopher Hitchens? How close was he? You know, interesting enough, he's got a brother, Peter Hitchens, who's wrote a couple books. And, and man, Peter, a devout Christian. You want to talk about, man, how does that happen? You've got one brother that is just on fire for the Lord, and the other is on that other end of the spectrum and on fire against the Lord. He gets it. That's it right there, this quote. So the incarnation, God became man. And again, this is going to be one of these areas as we kind of walk through, as, we, as the weeks go on, that you know, we're going to look at this idea, man, this separates Christianity from these other worldviews that we're going to talk about. This is one of those huge points, right? God became man. The incarnation, it's a key component for God's redemptive plan. Hebrews 2.17 it says, he had made, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
If God the Son didn't leave the glories of heaven and take on humanity, what does that mean for us? We have no hope. We have no salvation. You can't crucify a spirit. Jesus had to take on humanity that he would walk the earth that we walk, that he would suffer the things that we suffer, that he would experience the temptations that we are tempted with, and yet he sins not. And he dies on the cross for our sins. You need a physical body to do that. He was buried, and he physically, a physical body resurrected from the grave so that we may also have salvation. The inca- without the incarnation, we have no salvation. It's that simple. Without the incarnation, we have no salvation. So Jesus defines the incarnation in John 14, 6. He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Man, we learned three important questions about life in this passage. I love this. We learn what is good. We learn what is true. And we learn what is beautiful. I'm the way. That is good. I'm the life. Or I'm the truth. That is what's true. And I'm the life. That is what's beautiful. You know, man, it is easy to sit there in our day and time and say, come, Lord Jesus, I'm done. You stick a fork in me. I am ready to go. But man, he has called us to live an abundant life here, now, and today. I mean, that's the hope that we have. John 10, 10, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly. Man, he doesn't want us walking through these days just being beaten down by the world and and just in sorrow and anguish and thinking there's no hope. There's always hope in Jesus Christ, and he wants us to live that hope out now. There's the future hope, but there's the hope of today. There's the hope of today. We need to, look, we need to remind ourselves that often. And you know what? And some days, and you know what I'm getting ready to say, some days we need to do it about every hour. Right? We all have those days. It's a, it's a life of hope. Let it be a life of encouragement. Let it be that which is good and true and beautiful. We good? So the gospel, it also separates Christianity from all other worldviews. Again, Kevin and I were just talking a little earlier in this life. We can talk about similarities amongst religions, and there are some. This separates it right here. When we talk about salvation, what? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you're saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no man may boast. Only in Christianity is salvation by grace through faith. Every other worldview, if there's a mode or if there's an idea of salvation, it's through works. It's what you do, and what you do, and how often you do it, and then, right, you're still not sure. Then you're still not sure if you make it in. Did, did I do enough good works that outweigh my bad works? Man, that is a, this is a major thing. How do you know when you've done enough good works to get into heaven? Man, you're just rolling the dice at that point in time and say, okay, God, I'm <laughs> you tell me. 
we don't have to have that response. Man, when we stand before the God of all creation, it's like, I placed my trust in your son, Jesus Christ. Come in, my child. This separates the incarnation. We have the gospel. So the grand story of the Bible, I think we talked briefly about this, or maybe we talked a lot about it last week. I don't remember. Uh, so again, so this is a, it's a meta-narrative. It's this grand story that explains all stories, that explains all reality. You know, if, is, is there anybody that's into physics or anything like that in here? Uh, never mind, I won't use that example. Then I'm, I'll move on then. You know, it's a thing called the M theory, right? And the M theory is the one theory that explains all other theories within the realm of physics as it deals with, with string theory and, and those kinds of things. But I'll stop. Never mind. And so anyway, right? But the biblical worldview... Right, This meta-narrative, this grand story is the story that best explains the reality that we live in. Okay, Every worldview tries to explain that reality. They try to give answers for that reality. But what we've got to see is, is it consistent? Does it pass those four tests that we talked about last week? And we're going to get into it. But the grand story is it's creation, it's fall, it's redemption, it's restoration. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> it's all of those things. It's those four parts. You know, and so when, when somebody, what's the Bible about? You need to, that's what you need to tell them. Man, don't, don't spend time trying to explain Leviticus. Lord, we don't, we don't understand Leviticus. <laughs> we don't. This is the story of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. So Creation. God created the world and all humanity. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created us in His image, Genesis 1.27. God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. God created. Then we see Jesus created in Colossians 1.16 and 17. It says, For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. You know, man, I was just studying that one time, and that, you know, what does that mean, all things hold together? Here's the reality. If God was to cease to exist, everything within the created order would cease to exist there would be nothing. He holds all things together. The good news is when we're talking about an eternal being, we don't have to worry about that part, that he would cease to exist. That's not a, it shouldn't be a worry of us. He holds all things together. That's awesome. God created us to worship him and to make his name known. Have you ever struggled with, what's God's will for my life? I know, I know you guys have asked that. All right? And because I teach college students, man, if I hear it once, I hear it a thousand times during the year. I just want to find out what God's will for my life is. and I'm never going to know. I'm like, this is God's will for your life. This is it right here, I tell them. God's will for you is that you worship Him and that you proclaim His name. Everything else is peripheral. 
that's what you're created for. That's what I'm created for. Now, how we do that is going to look different. It's going to look different. Right? Some people, music just draws them into the throne room of God, and they just worship and they praise. and Amen for that. And that happens to me once or twice a year, and it's a, it's a moving thing. Right? But when I study God's Word, that's where I get drawn into the throne room of God. I just love it. It's, I'm passionate about it. It just brings me to tears that when God teaches me a truth that I really have no right to know. That leads me to worship Him. And because He's worthy and because He's life-changing, we need to let other people know. And again, how we do that, that's going to look different. You may be a school teacher. You may be an engineer. You may be a fireman. You may be... Look, those are platforms for living out your Christian faith. Those are platforms for living out your Christian faith. What's God's will for your life? That you would worship Him and make His name known. Isaiah 43, 7. Everyone who's called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I, whom I, I, whom I have made. I'll get that one out here in a minute. <laughs> Isaiah 43, 7. Deuteronomy 32, 3. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Matthew 28, 18 and 20. And Jesus came up to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always. We are to proclaim his name. So we have this idea also in creation is created in his image. Right? There's five ways or capacities or attributes, if you want to say, in which humans, in which we are like God. Five ways. There may be more, but these are the ones that, that I got. One, it's spiritual likeness. Right? God is spirit, and we have a spirit aspect to our nature. It's through the spirit that we communicate with the Lord. We're moral beings. God is a moral being. Right? We can know good and do evil. We can know good and evil, and we can do good and evil. God just knows good and evil. We're rational beings. We have intellect. Some of us more than others. Right? It's okay. Romans 1, 18 and 19. He's made us thinking human beings. We just need to think well. We just need to think well. Creativity. We have creative ability like God, but not exactly like God. Right? And we look at a world and, and they're, you know, and again, science, technological advances, they're like, look what we've done. Right? And some people, right? We're gods ourselves because we can create like this. You didn't create like God. You didn't create like God. Because when God created, there was nothing. You're starting with something. You're starting with something that God created, and now you're trying to take ability to yourself that, that you don't have. We have creativity because God is a creative God. We're relational. We can have relation with God, with others, with the created order, and with oneself. The relational aspect in humanity allows for dignity and humility. Look, if we don't see people as image bearers of God, 
man, there's all kinds of atrocities that will take place in the world. Let me back up. There's all kinds of atrocities that have taken place in the world. When we fail to see people as image bearers of God, because of that, they have intrinsic value and worth. Man, I I don't care if it's a homeless person or a prostitute down off of Bill Street. They have intrinsic value and worth, and we need to see them that way. We need to see them that way. God created them that way. They're not living it out, and you know what? Often we don't. Often we don't live that out, but they're image bearers. They have value, they have worth, they have dignity. So your view of creation determines what you will think about God. Your view of creation determines what you will think about God. If you believe in supernatural creation, in other words, that there's a being who's all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, unchanging, who created all things from nothing, if you're one of those people that believe that, then you also understand that you are accountable to God. He created us. He made the rules. We get to decide are we going to follow by those rules or not, but that's our only decision. We are accountable to God. If you believe in naturalism, right? Big Bang, Darwinian evolution, all of that aspect of it, then you believe there is no God and you're accountable to nobody but yourself. You get to call the shots. Carl Truman calls this idea uh, expressive individualism. He's got a great book out there. It's called A Strange New World. Um, if you got time, I'd encourage you to read it. Some people call it the autonomous self. I don't know whether you noticed this or not, but we live in kind of a narcissistic society. That's expressive individualism being lived out. I get to call the shots. I'm pursuing my happiness. If you're interfering with that, then you're part of the problem. Then you're part of the problem. And we'll either cancel you or we'll just push you to the fringe because you will not interfere with my happiness. I answer only to myself. I get to make my own reality. I can define my own gender. I'll create my own world. You always want to ask, how's that working for you right now? Not well. Your view of creation determines what you'll think about God. And what you think about God will define all of your actions, your ideas for the rest of your life. Once a large portion of the culture believes we are only accountable to ourselves, the culture will move into swift decline. If I am only accountable to myself, man, it's like falling off a cliff. Ethically, morally, spiritually, man, it's a, it's a deep dive. Because you become the center of the universe instead of the God of the universe. <clears throat> like I said, that, uh, Carl Truman, he's got Strange New Worlds. Again, another good book that's out there, it's called Faithfully Different by Natasha Crane. Um, by the way, we, we have that in the bookstore, and it'll be open on Sunday, so come by and see me. Yeah, that's my shameless plug for the night, okay? That's, we're going to go. So implications of naturalism. If you believe in naturalism, there's no life after death. There's no foundation for morality. You can't say that something's right or wrong 
good or bad, evil or wicked, because there's no foundation for, for calling anything like that. There's no free will. You're just dancing to the DNA of your body. You don't get to make decisions. You're just like an animal, and you just react and respond. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no hope. Man, that's encouraging, isn't it? It's just like, golly, let's go out and just be naturalist. That's just an exciting life to have. You know, you, you wonder why depression is such a huge part in our culture. I used to tell people, I said, you know, if you can go into the medical field, you'll always have a job. And now it's, and that's probably still true too, but now it's like, man, if you go into counseling, man, you got years of work ahead of you. You got years. You will never run out of people that, that are in need of counseling. Naturalism will bring you to that. Questions? Yeah, Amanda? Actually, atheism is, is going to be born out of naturalism. Yeah, naturalism is that overall worldview that, you know, the, the earth or the, I'm sorry, the universe is a closed system. So there's nothing outside of the system that is imposing anything upon it. Right. And so it just came about by natural processes. Which means there's no design, there's no purpose. It's just more chaos and mutations and just chance happenings is how the earth and the universe got here and how we got here. So there is no God that's intervening on that. And so atheism would be birthed out of naturalism. Does that answer your question? Okay. So then we have the fall, the second part of the story. Right? Humans sinned when they rebelled against God. Right? The sin wasn't that they ate the fruit. The sin was that they disobeyed God's command. That's the sin. Right? And people say, really? Eternal separation for eating a piece of fruit? If that was the issue, then I could, I could agree with your, with your challenge. It's not eating a piece of fruit. It's they clearly knew what God said. Right? You got all of these trees. Just don't eat this one. You, you got one job. That's it. And we couldn't do that. It was rebellion against God's word, right? Satan causes them to doubt God's goodness and the truthfulness of his word. And they followed, they followed Satan. That's the sin. Sin is to miss the mark, or I love this, to depart from the good life God intends for each of us. God intends for you a good life. But we depart from that when we sin. Right? The fall affects everyone. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone means everyone. Right? The world we live in is not as it ought to be. Man, if you just, if you know somebody and man, and they've had a family member that's gone through a tragic death, it's like, man, how could this happen? How could God let this happen? Those are painful times. Man, this is not God's purpose and design. This is not how God created it to be, right? Sin brought this into the world. 
the world we live in is not as it ought to be. Right? Sin disrupts our relationship with God. Again, we see that with Adam and Eve. Actually, we see it all play out there. Um, right? It alienates us from each other. Right? Adam. God said, hey, what happened? Adam blames God and Eve. Right? This is the woman you gave me did this. And then Eve, what does she say? It's a serpent. Right? Satan didn't get a chance to respond. Don't you find that interesting? He had already been judged. Satan had already been judged. And so sin, it alienates us from God. It disrupts our relationship with God. It alienates us from each other. It affects literally our life within the, the created order. I mean, how the earth operates is affected by the sin. And you can go into Romans chapter 8 when you get into there, and it just talks about that. Man, there's the, the groanings of the earth because of the sin that bears down on it. Sin affects that. And then it brings the sickness, suffering, and death into human existence. That was not God's purpose, and that was not God's design. When we sin, we bring that into ourselves, and we bring that into the world. Questions? Amanda. Oh, that he means for us to have a good life? Yeah, he, that, he, that anything bad that happened wasn't really part of God's plan. Well, and, and it really wasn't. I mean, because when you get in to sit there and say, well, because it comes down to, are we putting evil at the feet of God? Did God create evil, right? That becomes the question, which is a common question. You know, if God's so good, why does evil exist? Well, God cannot create. Well, one, evil is not anything that created. Evil is an absence of good. And then we end up with that it's disobedience is what brought evil into the world. And we find that with Satan, right? When he rebelled against God and he wanted to become higher than God, right? He brought sin into the universe. Adam and Eve brought sin into the earth. And so his intention was that he created all things good and with purpose and design, right? Now, he knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. So God's not surprised by any of that. Right? He knows that, but he didn't create that because then that makes God responsible for evil. And that's not part of his character. So when God handed Job over to Satan, you don't think that anything that happened to Job is what God did? God allowed that to happen, but he didn't cause that to happen. Because he could have said, Satan, you do with him what you want. And Satan, being the nice guy, he said, you know what, I like Job. I just don't think I'm going to do any of that. Right? But that was Satan's choice to bring that against Job. It wasn't God saying, hey, I want you to just throw haymakers on Job for the next 10 years. No, but God did say, Yeah, he allows that to happen. And so that's when we, when we get into these ideas that, man, when struggles come into our life, right? When tragedy comes into our life, when evil comes into our life, God may allow that. Not may, God does allow that. Let me change that. God does allow that, but he doesn't cause that. That's the difference. I don't know if I explained that well or not. Are you okay? All right. 
Yeah. 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 Well, that's one of those things where God, that's that Romans 8, 28, right? Where God works all things, to, or is that 8, 26? But God works all things to the good of those who love him, right? And so again, it's, that's where we sit there and say, man, if evil happens, if, if a tragedy happens to me, God can turn that to good. And I can either use that tragedy and say, okay, God, what is it you want me to know? I want to draw closer to you. I want to know you more. Some people is like, God, forget it. I'm done. If this is the way you're going to treat your children, no thanks. Again, we choose how we get to respond. And so God doesn't bring evil. That's not part of his character. He cannot do evil. He cannot bring evil. But he certainly can allow it, and he can test us. He can test us. Because even in evil, good can come about. Right? I think we talked about this last semester. Um, <clears throat> right, Man, the greatest evil in the world brought about the greatest good. And that was Jesus Christ dying on the cross, the innocent human being, sinless human being, but it brought about salvation to us. The greatest evil brought about the greatest possible good. And so it's just important that we understand God will allow it, but he won't cause it. Redemption. Right, the third part of the story. <clears throat> Excuse me. Redemption is God's process of redeeming his people and all of creation. All right, Colossians 1:20. Uh, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. He's reconciling all things. Humanity and creation. He's bringing all of those things back and he's reconciling to himself. All right, redemption means to restore to a healthy state. What once was a healthy state, God created and he said, it's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. Sin defaced that, God's going to restore that. So restoration, right? Jesus is making all things new, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new have come. God's redemption does not change us into something new, but restores us to how we were originally attended, intended. He restores us. Man, when you walk through the gates of glory, you're not going to be something that you've never been before. Right? Do you ever hear that saying, hey, be a better you? That, that's when you're going to be a better you. That's it. You'll look the way you look now. Maybe not the way you look now, right? Hopefully I'm going to look a little bit better than this. God's going to restore that original creation that was intended for you. As Christians, we're called to engage the culture with the gospel but not just the gospel. The gospel is the starting point. Until we get to that, until people give their life to Christ, we can't move on to step two, right? 
When Scripture talks about salvation, it talks about justification, which becomes your point of salvation. It talks about sanctification, which is the process of becoming like Christ. That's every day that we live on this earth is a sanctifying day for us. And then there's glorification, and that's when we reach. We reach the throne room of God. And then we will worry no more about sin nor tears. All right? We're called to engage the gospel. But so often what happens is, is man, we share the gospel. We see somebody get saved. Amen, man. We mark, it, we mark our Bible, put our little you know, notch in the Bible, and, and we move on. No. No, we don't. Now the work begins. Because we don't save anybody. That's the reality. We share the gospel. The Spirit saves. But then the discipleship process begins. Then the hard work begins. Right? Then the messy work begins. Man, if you've ever spent time discipling people, I'm like, was my life as messed up as yours? I mean, you get into stuff. That's engaging the, cul the culture. That's engaging the culture. When we work to bring people to grow into the maturity of the faith. You know, I can't. Billy Graham Crusades, right? Anybody? Yeah, I used to watch those before I was saved, and I was thinking, oh, ridiculous. And then I got saved, and I was just amazed that you're just seeing hundreds of thousands of people being saved. I was like, this is awesome. I think I've heard somebody, somebody estimated like over a million people to the Billy Graham sharing the gospel got saved. And I was just amazed at that whole thing. And then something hit me. Where are those million people at? Are they walking with Christ today? Are they discipling? Are they growing? Are they leading other people closer to Christ? If we have that idea that all we got to do is share the gospel and we get to move on, that's the starting point. And then the hard work begins. Engaging the culture is never less than the gospel, but it's always going to be more than the gospel. And I know you're probably thinking, man, that just sounds kind of heretical. Man, it's biblical. It's biblical. The cultural commission, right? And this is this where the, we get this idea at, right? 128, right? God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Hey, if that was just about making babies and populating the earth, okay. It's more than that. Man, it's about dominion. It's about stewardship. It's about handling well what God puts in your hand. It's creating a culture of flourishing. Right? Adam and Eve, they were called to fill the earth, but they were also called to explore and create and build civilization through flourishing. You know, it's, it's, it's not a mistake, right? that Adam and Eve, start. the story starts in the garden. And when we get to Revelation, they're in a city. That's not a mistake. 
Because I've often asked, well, if God's restoring all things to its natural state, why don't we go back to the garden? Because we were called to create a culture of flourishing, of civilization, of goodness, of kindness, of generosity. Right? That's what we're called to do. And we're still called. That hasn't changed for us today. Just because of the fall, it's like, well, we, we messed that up. No, we're still called to this cultural commission today. To whatever your sphere of influence is, it may be big, it may be small, but you're called to create a culture of flourishing for God's glory, for the proclamation of His name. Every one of us are called to that. Every one of us. Jeremiah 29, 1-7, specifically verse 7, it says, Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray for the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. And again, that wealth, it's shalom. That word welfare is shalom. It's peace. But when you look at that word peace or shalom, it's much more than, oh, man, I've, I've got a life of no problems. Man, it's a life of God's goodness and His abundance and flourishing and walking in His ways that people are drawn to Him. Now, again, the context of this, I always want to be careful about this because, you know, you know, we always, we don't always, that's, that, that's, that's not right. That's negative hyperbole and it's not true. Often what happens is, is we take verses out of context, right? 29.11, Jeremiah, I know the plans I have for you, right? I know the plans I have for you. He's going to do all these good things. And I was telling my students that, and I said, why shouldn't that be your life verse? One student said, that is my grandma's life verse. Well, let's talk about why it shouldn't be. All right? This verse, the context, it's written to Israel while they're in exile in Babylon. That's the context. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but none of you were there. That is not a promise to you or I. But there is a principle there. There is a principle there that we can apply to our lives. Right? Because when you go on and you read all that big portion of chapter 29, he's saying, hey, while you're in exile, you need to go and work and plant gardens and build homes and man, and let your daughters marry the men and let your men marry the daughters. They're specifically, right? We got that. Go, and while you're in exile in Babylon, you create a culture of flourishing. That's what he says. The principle is, while we're living in Memphis, Tennessee, we need to create a culture of flourishing. We need to plant gardens. We need to build homes. Man, we need to bring God's shalom into our spheres of influence. That's what we need to be doing. That's the principle. That's, that's not our, right? You can say that's my life principle. You just can't say that's my life verse, right? And so I explained that, and we walked through the passage, and the student was like, I don't think I'm going to tell my grandma that. <laughs> and I'm like, good decision. <laughs> you leave your grandma alone. All right? Good decision. Cultural commission. We are called to create a culture of flourishing. Right? We are called to restore the world around us, and we do so by creating an environment of flourishing. 
period. That's the way it's done. We are, create, we are to create and restore culture. We are called to carry forth the Great Commission and the Cultural Commission. We hear a lot about the Great Commission, as we should. How many of you have heard about the Cultural Commission before this? Yeah, me too. We are human. Man, just feel the weight of this. We are humanity's only hope for fulfilling these commandments. You know, you can talk about what somebody believes, and they can talk passionately about it, and they can pound their fists and stamp their feet. If you want to know what somebody believes, watch how they live their life. Watch how they live their life. Again, Kevin and I were just talking about this earlier, and it's like, yeah, I yeah, I think everybody should share the gospel. I, yeah. Well, when's the last time you shared the gospel, Rick? I've never shared it. I don't really believe that if I'm not doing that. Right? It's easy to talk a good game. Sure gets difficult living it out. Man, God calls us to live the gospel of Jesus Christ out, not just the gospel, but the, right? the Great Commission. Questions? So what's the problem? All right. I was telling Joel this earlier. Look, this is not millennial bashing that's going on, okay? Okay, I just want you to know that. These are just some statistics that we pulled in. And so I'm not bashing. Millennials are great. I love them. They're all great. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think we get into the idea that all we have to do is share the gospel and love people and we're good. That's all we got to do. That's just not what Scripture says. The Scripture says we are to share the gospel. right? That's the, that's the beginning. That's, that's step A. Because the cultural commission is a worldview idea, most pastors are not trained in worldview ideas. Ask them about Greek. Ask them about Hebrew, ecclesiology, and eschatology. They're all over that. But when you start talking about worldviews, they're just not trained on that. See, the issue is, is we have a worldview problem in our society. We have a worldview problem in our church. Because we, we fail to understand what we have been called to do. Go share Jesus. You're good. That's the starting point. And so it's, it's just not talked about. It's just not talked about. But when we start talking about it, people are like, man, that makes sense. I can see that. I can see where Scripture calls us to that. Man, then you begin to see, man, living the Christian life is so much more than showing up at 2000 Appling Road. Right? I'm, we should. Worship, praise, we should be doing all of that. It's so much more than doing Bellevue Loves Memphis once a quarter. We need to be doing that. We need to be doing that every single day. And again, I fail miserably in that. But I know we need to. 
if I'm going to influence culture, that they would see that God is good and true and beautiful. I need to be out in there, and I need to be actively living this out. We just don't talk about it. Pastors aren't trained on it. I think that's why. There could be other reasons, but you know, maybe we're not ready to hear it, or we don't want to hear it. You know, it's easy to beat up on the church, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And sin does disrupt the cultural commission. Again, when we were talking about it, it disrupts our relationship with God. It disrupts our relationship with others. I mean, it's that idea. Hang on a second, Henry. It disrupts that idea with everything. But, and again, it doesn't negate the cultural commission. It just makes it more difficult to do, right? And again, it's just like, um, right? One of the curses on E, right? You're going to have pain in childbirth. And uh, let me get this off here real quick. And her desire would be to rule over the husband. You know, that's not the way God intended it to be. That's a result of the fall. And so the conflict that we have in marriage is part of the curse. And that we see with Adam, right? Adam was working before the fall. It's just now it's just thorns and thistles and sweat of the brow. And man, we are just grunting, trying to get through life. Well, the cultural commission has not changed. It's just more difficult to do because of the fall. And it's hard work. Let me tell you, when you start studying culture, it doesn't change overnight. It is hard work to create a new culture. It's hard work. And that's maybe one reason why we don't even know much about it is because, it, man, I, I, that's not for me. That's for, that's for you guys. We're called to it nonetheless. We're called to it nonetheless. 
So yeah, it becomes more difficult to do it. Look, if it was easy living the Christian life, everybody would become Christians. You know, that idea, hey, get Jesus and man, you're going to be happy. And it's, it's, man, it's just all butterflies and, right, and marshmallows. No. If you're walking with Christ, it's going to be just the opposite of that. It's just our perspective on it becomes different. It becomes different. It becomes biblical. Right? Read 1 Peter. Man, it's all about suffering. Man, count of joy. So what's the problem, right? The American Worldview Inventory, this was done in 2022, so this is just some of the findings that are in there. Two-thirds of the preteen parents identify as Christians. Two-thirds of preteen parents identify as Christians, 66%. Only 2% meet the minimal criteria of possessing a biblical worldview. Only 2%. Now, that doesn't mean that only 2% are Christians. I'm not saying that they've never repented of their sins, that they've never, right? I'm just saying they're not living out their Christian faith. They're not living according to a biblical worldview. Only 2% of the 66%, only 2% have the minimal criteria of possessing a biblical worldview. Right? Parents have the primary responsibility to prepare their child to walk in the ways of Christ. So it's not, hey, send your kid to church on Wednesday nights and Sundays and say, would you fix my kid? No. It's that attitude is why you have problems with your kids. A biblical worldview allows an individual to make choices in harmony with biblical teachings and principles. That's what a biblical worldview does. Millennials make up most of today's parents with children at home. That, that preteen thing, those are millennials. Right? There's not many Abrahams and Sarahs out there. 4% of millennials hold to a biblical worldview. Right? And when we looked at this study last semester, there's really only 6% of, of just all adults that claim to be Christian hold to a biblical worldview. Only 4% are millennials. Approximately one in four parents of preteens believe objective moral truth exists. So 75% don't believe in objective moral truth. 75% don't believe in the personal agency of the Holy Spirit. In other words, that the Holy Spirit is a personal being. It's not a force, Right? It's not some cosmic thing that's going around. It's a personal being. The Holy Spirit is. They believe life is sacred. 75% of them do not. Half of practicing Christian millennials, get this, believe it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. They believe it's wrong to share the gospel. I was reading the study on this, and it all hinges, well, I might offend somebody. I'll guarantee you the gospel is going to offend somebody. Right? That's not what Christ calls us to. We don't need to be ugly. We don't need to be abusive. We don't need to be arrogant about it. We need to be loving and kind. But please know, when you share the gospel, there's going to be people that are going to be offended. Man, I'd rather you be offended at me for sharing the gospel than God to be angry at me for not. You're going to lose that one every time. 
And you're like, how does, how does that even happen? Again, there was another study, right? Millennials are more pro-life than the generation before them. I'm like, man, that's awesome. You guys are killing it. But then there was another study that showed, man, a millennial, 50% of them would take their friend to an abortion clinic if they thought it would help them. How do you put those two things together? I don't know. I just know that's not right. I know he calls us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. I know that because scripture tells us that. So 40% of the millennials hold to this notion, false notion that if someone says they disagree with you, it means that you're judging them. That you're judging them if they disagree. You know, it's that whole idea of tolerance. <laughs> right? Tolerance today is mean that you would agree and affirm what I believe. The only issue is that's not tolerance. <laughs> that's not tolerance. Tolerance is, is I disagree with you, but I'll respect your right to hold that. I don't have to agree with it, but you can hold that position. Not, not millennials. 40% is like, well, you're judging me. And so it's easy to get when people say, oh, you're, you're causing violence because I'm saying something that hurts your feelings. And so now, oh, you're, you're, you're creating violence against me. That's not violence. Am I speaking truth? It needs to be the question. Am I speaking truth? Look, you can't pass along what you don't possess. You can't pass along what you don't possess. And so if we are looking at these parents of the preteens, if they don't possess a biblical worldview, how are their children going to get it? How are they going to get it? That's why last week I was talking about, you know, we haven't even begun to study the whole Gen Z, which is what, what most of our kids are today, these preteens and stuff. Man, unless God just comes and does something supernatural, it's not going to be any better than that. There's no reason for it to be. We need to create a culture of flourishing, of vibrancy, of health, of goodness, of truth, of beauty. We're called to that. So now let's get into the biblical worldview. The biblical worldview is a consistent and coherent worldview based on the Bible and the life and the ministry of Jesus. It passes the four tests of truth. We talked about this last week, so we'll go kind of quick through this. Every worldview needs to have this test put on it. This, this is what it is. The first test is the test of reason. Can it be logically stated and defended? Is it consistent and not self-refuting? You know, this really becomes alive when we start talking about the New Age movement. It fails this test every single time. The test of the outer world, is there some external or self-corroborating evidence to support it? Historical worldviews must be corroborated by external evidence. Historical worldviews would be Christianity, Judaism, Islam. I'll go and throw Mormonism in there. They say it's a historical worldview, but it fails on every account. But anyway, if you claim to be a historical worldview, you need to have history on your side. You need to have archaeology. You need to have artifacts on your side. 
Test of the inner world. Does it adequately match what we experience in our world? Does it line up with what we think and feel? Does it conform to reality? Does it conform to reality? And then the test of the real world. Are its consequences good or bad when applied to any given cultural context? Again, last week we kind of talked about the idea of China's one-child policy. And it's failed miserably. And now they got a two-child policy or a three-child policy. Just a bad idea. And now they're reaping the consequences of that. Five things to consider. Again, we're going to blow through this pretty quick. Uh, there's five questions that we want to consider about the Bible. Man, when I usually cover this, we spend four weeks on this piece right here. But it's we don't have four weeks. So how are you to understand or interpret the Bible? Man, we are to interpret Scripture through a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpretation. And what that says is we don't interpret it allegorically and metaphorically. It doesn't mean that there's not allegory in there or there's not metaphors in there, right? Because once we switch, switch to a metaphorical or allegorical interpretation, I hold the interpretation. Right? You may have written the letter, but it's like, oh, this, is, this is what she really means. This is what, I don't want to see you again. You're just a self-righteous, arrogant jerk. What's she say? She's into me. <laughs> right? No, I don't get to interpret your letter. You hold the meaning to your letter. I know she's never sent you a letter like that, right? Okay. <laughs> Not me, right? And so we get into this idea is whoever wrote the letter, they hold the meaning to the letter. We don't get to reinterpret it. That's postmodernism all over the place. So what does the Bible say about humanity? We talked about this, Genesis 1, 27, 28. We all have value. We're all created in God's image. What does the Bible say is wrong with us? Sin. Easy enough. Romans 3.10. There's none that is righteous. None means none. Um, we can't save ourselves. What does it say about how we should live? We are to live holy lives separated unto God for good works. First Peter says, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And again, it's back to that idea. You know, what you really believe, that's what you'll live. It will be revealed in your actions. Ephesians 2.10, for we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Think about that. Man, God has created good works for each one of us to do and to live. Man, I get excited about that, and then there's deep conviction. I wonder how many good works I've left on the table. But when we do the good works we begin to create a culture of flourishing. Man, that's, that's your connection. God created this for us to do. We need to do it. And when we do it according to His way, then we, we begin to engage the culture and we create a culture that flourishes. How are we to understand other worldviews based on this? Colossians 2.8. They're not our enemy. They're not our enemy. They have been taken captive by lies and empty philosophy and traditions and elementary principles of the world. Man, we need to love them and share the truth of the gospel with them. We need to live it out in our lives that we can snatch them from the fire. Not we, that the Spirit can, but they would see that in our lives. We are not to have a syncretistic worldview. Talked last week, 88% of the population has a syncretistic worldview. Right? This is a, 
It's just a buffet of what you believe. Just go down there. Oh, yeah, I kind of like that one. And then I'll take two of those. That's a syncretistic worldview. I like it. It works for me. Whether it's true or not, it's not the issue. It just works for me. We are to stand firm on the Word of God and proclaim it wherever we go, and we are to live it out. Man, only the biblical worldview gives a sense of meaning and purpose to life. And then the last thing, and I'm sure you've never heard this before, if you're not actively cultivating a biblical worldview, then you're passively absorbing a false one. It takes work to have a biblical worldview. We need to constantly be checking ourselves. We need to constantly be praying. We need to be pouring over the Scriptures to see how does my life align. Questions? Let me close this in prayer. Blessed Father, we thank you that you've, that you've called us to be a part of your work. You don't need us, but you've called us. You've allowed us to, to be a part of this. You've called us to create a culture of flourishing, a shalom, Lord, that wherever we go, may that peace be upon us. May we set our needs aside and consider others more important than ourselves. I pray that you would give us opportunities to have discussions this week, Lord, that this wouldn't this knowledge obtained and that we would just file it away. But, but Lord, it would be knowledge applied, which is wisdom. May that be found in each of our lives as we go forth this week, O oh Lord, and may we bring glory to your name. May we magnify you in all that we say and do. Father, send your blessings upon each person in here. Guide them safely home. It's in your mighty name we ask these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.